if it ain't broke, don't fix it. I can appreciate this sentiment as someone who's not really a type A personality. Uh, if it's working well enough, if it's doing the job, let's not mess with it. My wonderful father, on the other hand, I believe has a, a different aphorism by which he lives by. It might be something like, if it ain't perfect, fix it. <laughs> and I think some of the engineers in the room would agree. If there's a way to improve things, you know, let's, let's pursue it, right? We can always make things smaller or bigger, more efficient, stronger, faster, more beautiful, more elegant. In life, we're always on the lookout for ways that we can improve things. And so when it comes to religion, uh, you might wonder if it's the same. Should we simply receive what has been given to us? Or maybe there's a, a, a new angle, a, a new spin, a new understanding or take on Christianity. Is the message of the cross that we just sang about and Christ's resurrection, is that relevant to life today? To help us answer this, these questions, we'll be in Colossians chapter 2 this morning, continuing our series there. So I'd encourage you to turn there. Um, we're not going to go all the way up to verse 15. We're only going to go up from chapter 2, verses 8 to, to verse 12. Uh, that's because I love you, and I thought not to have a 90-minute sermon. So Lord willing, next week we'll cover verses 13 to 15. Over the last few months, we've been working our way through Colossians, and the Apostle Paul has praised the faith, hope, and love of the believers there. He's reveled in the redemption that God the Father worked through God the Son, and then he has summoned the Colossian Christians to persevere, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. And in chapter 1, verse 24, Paul rejoiced in his afflictions on behalf of the church, suffering so that he might proclaim Christ to the Gentiles. And then last week, at the beginning of chapter 2, we saw the Apostle Paul remind the church uh, that because all the riches of knowledge and insight are found in Christ, they should walk in him. They should live in him. So this morning we'll have five points. And the main idea of our passage is simply this. In Christ, you have all that you need. In Christ, you have all that you need. So look with me at Colossians 2, beginning in verse 8. I, I will read all the way to verse 15 to get an overview of the, the whole passage. So Colossians 2, beginning in verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. According to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised, with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith and the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses, and the uncircumcision of your flesh. 
God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Amen. Well, our first point is found in verses 8 to 9, entitled, Captive to Christ. Uh, And in these verses, Paul is reviving the concern that he has that the Colossian Christians not be led astray or deluded by plausible arguments, as he put it last week. Uh, In a few weeks, we will get the content of the false teaching that the Colossians were beginning to fall prey to. We don't get that here. Instead, we get the source of that which was plaguing this church. So you see the main idea there in verse 8. Paul states, see to it that no one takes you captive. And then he qualifies it. He qualifies it in three ways, each time going deeper into the source of this false teaching. So first he says, don't be taken captive by philosophy and empty deceit. Here the emphasis is on the other spiritualities, the other teachings that promoted a false religion, a false understanding of the world, and were competing with Christ to reign supreme in the hearts and minds of these Colossian Christians. Uh, There are systems of thought whereby the nature of Christ, the creation of this world, the dignity of the human person, the sinfulness of all mankind. Uh, There are systems back then and present today, religious and non-religious, that the Colossians and that we, we have to beware of. And yet these philosophies don't spring up out of nowhere. No, the philosophies come from, number two, people. That's the second thing to beware You see, these philosophies don't stem from divine revelation. Instead, they are according to human tradition. That is, they're man-made. They're made up. Now, of course, the false teachers wouldn't have said that about it. Oh, yeah, this is made-up wisdom. This is man-made insight. But Paul calls them out, doesn't he? He says this revelation is not from God. It's not heavenly wisdom. It's human tradition. Uh, And so Paul here doesn't want the Colossians enslaved or encaptured by these mere mortals. Uh, And so Christian, today, uh, beware of politicians or internet philosophers or cable news personalities or even preachers who are trying to, to grow a following. Whatever interest they, they say that they're promoting, beware of those who build you into themselves. Uh, that are trying to make you captive, not to Christ, but to their own teaching, to their own show, to their own podcast, to their own church. A, a good question to ask when, when you're you know, kind of listening to something uh, to reflect on that is that when I'm done listening to so-and-so and their teaching, does it raise my affections for Christ? Or does it leave me awed by that speaker? You know, when you go away by listening to some preacher or teacher or theologian or philosopher, 
Well, these Colossians, they were being tempted to not follow after Christ anymore, but to pursue these human traditions and these human teachers. As you listen to various things, as I trust you do, and I encourage you to, uh, about the world and Christianity and the gospel and how it applies to life, uh, we want to make sure that we are not being taken captive by human wisdom, mere human tradition. So beware, number one, of philosophies. Beware, number two, of people. And then here's where verse 8 gets really deep. Because where do these humans get these teachings from? What's behind them? Number three, beware of the powers. These teachings are according to the elemental spirits of the world. According to the elemental spirits of the world. Uh, now, Paul uses a very specific term here. Here's how kind of the, the leading New Testament dictionary defines the word. Elemental spirits, the word behind it. Uh, it's referring to the transcendent powers that are in control over events in this world. We, we read about that in Ephesians 2 in the scripture reading. The prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience. Right, So if you're like me, you tend to live in a practical, materialistic, naturalistic world. We are all tempted to think that there are materialistic explanations for everything. It's just us and stuff. But here Paul reminds us that there are elemental spirits. There are forces and powers that are real. Uh, we assume today that events, teachings, doctrines are merely and purely human realities. Yet here, Paul traces these philosophies back, yes, to, to mere human tradition, but there's a sense in which they're actually not mere human tradition. They are not divinely ordained teachings. Rather, they're human teachings, yet they stem from spiritually influential beings. Uh, this is confirmed, I think, in Colossians 2.20, where Paul writes, if you have died with Christ from the elemental spirits of the world, it's the same, same word, why are you living in the world submitting to their doctrines? Right, I know it's, it sounds crazy. The, 1 Timothy, or it might be 2 Timothy, refers to the doctrines of demons. There are things we believe that spiritual forces want us to believe. You know, we tend to think that it's just kind of this lonely seven billion person planet. But it's more than that. There are spiritual forces at work. And so Paul's point is, don't fall captive to these philosophies or persons or powers. And, and so I think, I think it's appropriate that we ask, okay, well, like, what does that look like 2,000 years later to not fall captive to these things, Scott? You're, you're saying the stakes are high. Paul's obviously concerned about it. How do we do that? I, I think the first thing we've got to do, so it's just kind of by way of application, is that we have to let God's word be the standard by which we judge everything else, uh, including other philosophies and theologies and opinions so uh, I went to a secular university, and I was a philosophy major there, and I think I basically completely misunderstood this whole point. 
because for four years, I, I would go to class and I would try to think, okay, how can I squeeze my Christianity so that it fits these philosophical assumptions? Because the philosophers are right, and now I have to try to kind of figure out where my Christianity can squeak in. But beloved, I think it's really, it's supposed to be the opposite, that God's word is the standard by which we judge everything else. Uh, Christ is the, the rule by which everything else is judged. Uh, so we need to be careful as we learn about these different philosophies that we do so in a way that is consistent with the Bible. We, lead, we need to let the scriptures be the judge of our own hearts, our own lives, and the philosophies and doctrines that we are taking in. So that's kind of number one way that we are not, we don't become captive to them. I think number two, we need to be aware of the dominant philosophies taught by humans according to the elemental spirits of the world that, that are the philosophies that are dominant in our day. Um, there, there are different errors in different, different errors in different eras. Uh, we need to be aware of what the errors are in our day, what the proclivities and the biases are today. So we can talk more about these, maybe over dinner tonight, after evening service. Uh, but a short list would be, you know, of things to beware of, transhumanism. Teaching that humans can use technology to achieve utopia and immortality. Uh, white supremacy or any kind of racial boasting that fails to consider how all people are made in God's image. Critical race theory, which seeks to divide humanity on ethnic lines and asserts oppression as the fundamental way people of different ethnicities relate to one another. Uh, the LGBTQIA plus movement misunderstands God's creation for marriage and sexuality and our bodies. Materialism teaches that the only thing that is real is that which we can touch and taste, that which we can see with our eyes. The immaterial realm is non-existent. Then there's postmodernism which teaches that all things are relative, there are no certainties in this world, and we can't know truth. Friends, these are just like the tip of the iceberg of the philosophies that are on your social media feeds, that are, your neighbors are talking about, that your children are talking about. So this, these aren't just kind of like crazy abstract ideas that at Harvard they're debating, but once you, you know, get home, you can just ignore. Uh, these are things that are very much in play in society, stuff that you will encounter in your daily life. And so number three, that's why we need one another. You know, the first words of verse eight are literally, watch out. That see to it, watch out. Watch out in the plural as well. It's addressed to Trinity Church of Bedford. It's addressed to us. You know, when you are being taken captive by some philosophy, I think the implication is something like, you can't get out of it, right? Like you're being taken captive and you need someone to rescue you, to help you, to speak words of truth and insight into your life. Uh, we need one another. And, and again, I, I do think this includes parents. Uh, if you have kids, these philosophies are the ones being taught in society and culture. It doesn't matter what kind of schooling you pursue or if you don't give your kid a smartphone until they're 20 years old, um, 
these are the ideas that are out there that we need to, as parents, be discipling our kids to understand. Uh, the world is seeking to catechize them in various philosophies. We need to make sure that they are not taken captive by them, but they are taken captive by Christ. That's how verse 8 concludes. Um, to be a taken captive according to Christ. I think put another way, it's good to be a slave of Christ. It's good to be doing his will because, as verse 9 states, for, because, in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Verse 9 is a clear assertion of Jesus' deity, that the fullness of God's divine nature dwells in Christ. Uh, recently, I was given a, a copy of a Jehovah's Witness magazine, uh, which was seeking to persuade people that the Trinity is, is not in the Bible, that Jesus is not God. And I noticed that they didn't deal with this verse. I was just kind of flipping through, like, oh, what, what do they talk about? They just kind of happily pretend this verse wasn't there. Uh, the truth is that the divinity of Christ is repeated on page after page of Scripture. And so note that Jesus isn't partly divine. He's not a human who became divine. He's not deity light. No, the fullness of deity dwells in him. This seems to be in contrast to the empty deceit of the false philosophies. God's very nature dwells in Jesus, and it dwells bodily in him, which seems to be a, a contrast. We'll see in a few weeks. The false teachers had this ascetic view uh, this really low view of the goodness of the body and material creation. And yet the Lord Jesus Christ, he didn't spurn our nature. No, he took on human flesh. He is the God-man, truly God and truly man. And so it's precisely because Paul is saying, don't be taken captive by these philosophies. Instead, Consider the greatness of Christ that we're going to see our next few points, our next four points, are meant by Paul to give us reasons for that. Why wouldn't you want to abandon Christ for these other philosophies? Well, let me tell you. That's what Paul is, is getting at in these next few verses, verses 10 to 12. Um, so, but before we can understand these theological truths in verses 10 to 12, we do have to ask one question, which is, why did Jesus's work, which happened 2,000 years ago, like, why does that have any bearing on your life today? Like, a lot of things have happened in 2,000 years. Why should you care about what happened 2,000 years ago in Jerusalem? What we find in these next few verses is that Paul highlights the work of Christ and how these things apply to us. And more than simply saying, these things happened back then, Colossian Christians, and they're important to you today, Paul is going to say something much more profound. His point is that when these things happened to Christ, they happened to you too. They are yours because you're in Christ, because you're united to Christ. This doctrine is known as union with Christ. It's a theological doctrine that, that really lies at the heart 
of the New Testament. And stated simply, union with Christ is uh, the, the doctrine, the truth, that when a person believes in Jesus, they are united to Christ in such a way that Christ's benefits and blessings become ours, while our sin and judgment and suffering become his. Uh, it's a lot like marriage, right? So in marriage, if you have 200000 in student loan debt, you get married, that's now your spouse's debt. That's right. And guess what? If your spouse had an eccentric uncle who left them the estate, that's yours. You're united. The two become one flesh, right? Well, so union with Christ, the two become one. Um, as Jesus is the Son of God, so now we who have by faith been united to him, we become sons and daughters of God. As Jesus is perfectly righteous, now we are accounted righteous because of union with Christ. As he's filled with the Spirit, so we are filled with the Spirit. As he will rule the new heavens and new earth, so we will rule the new heavens and new earth. We get all these blessings that he deserved. And then conversely, well, we are sinners. And on the cross, he was treated as a sinner. We sowed death by our sinning. He reaped death on the cross. We deserve hell. And so he took it. Let me give you two quotes on union with Christ before we see it in our passage. Our Pastor John Murray states, I think, uh, Josh Marara loves this, this quote, this book. Union with Christ is the central truth of the whole doctrine of salvation. It is not simply a phase of the application of redemption. It underlies every aspect of redemption. And theologian Anthony Hokuma wrote, Once you have your eyes opened to this concept of union with Christ, you will find it almost everywhere in the New Testament. All right? So, with that in mind, our first benefit of being united to Christ and the reason why you shouldn't abandon Christ for these empty philosophies is verse 10. You have been filled in Christ, who is the head of all rule and authority. You hear that union with Christ language. You're full in him. The point is that because Jesus is full, right? The fullness of deity dwells in him. Well, now we are full. This is not saying that we become deified. It's not saying that we become gods. But the fullness of God's presence, that God's blessing, and God's favor now rests upon us. And so, beloved, if you are in Christ, you are full. You lack no good thing. You may have poverty in this life, but through Christ, I can assure you, in the ages to come, you have great riches. You may feel weak and that your body is wasting away. But in Christ, you have a resurrection body awaiting you. Your wisdom may be limited, your outlook bleak, your future uncertain. Yet in Christ, you already have all that you need for eternity. Which again is, the, you know, Paul's saying this. Because he's trying to say, like, Colossian Christians, what are you trying to get outside of Christ that you don't already have inside of Christ? You are full. What could you possibly be lacking? Uh, it's as if your, your father is the owner of a vast estate. 
He owns all that your eye beholds. And then you, little child that you are, um, it would make no sense to go up to the, the butler or the maid and say like, hey, I really need something, but my dad can't provide it. I, I need you to give me something. There, there's nothing that that person's going to provide that the father does not have. The father does not own. Well, so it is that, that we are prone to the same folly, isn't it? We try to find lasting joy in our houses or our jobs. We look to our kids or the possibility of a spouse as the key to unlocking future contentment. We think more money in the bank will provide peace or better sex will provide a thrill or more obedience will quiet our consciences. And yet, friends, we will only find that which is true and good and beautiful in Christ. And it is a fool's errand to look outside of him. For these Colossian Christians, Paul reminds them that Christ is the fullness of God. They are full in him and that Christ reigns as head over every rule and authority in the cosmos. Uh, that's a term we've, we've seen multiple times in Colossians. Lord willing, we'll, we'll see it next week in verse 15. It, it denotes the spiritual powers of the universe. And again, Paul is reminding us that the rulers and authorities, um, the very real spiritual powers that are at work today in the world, they ain't got nothing on Jesus. Like the private doesn't outrank the general. The servant doesn't command the king. Christ is the only one to whom we must listen because he is the head over every ruler and authority. And so second in verse 11, we read, In him also you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by the putting off of the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ. Here we see, this is number two, the second benefit. Here we see that unions, uh, Christians are united to Christ in his death. That's the, the, what the second half of the verse refers to. In chapter 1, verse 22, uh, Paul had written that now Christ has reconciled you in his body of flesh by his death. That's the only other time in the New Testament that we get that phrase, the body of the flesh. And it's referring to Christ's death on the cross. So here, you know, we see Paul refer to the circumcision of Christ. And, and he's meaning by that uh, the death of Christ. Why does Paul refer to the death of Christ as a kind of circumcising of Christ? In what sense was Christ's body of flesh circumcised in his death? I think Christ's death can be considered a kind of circumcision because in it, he cast off his weak, frail flesh. The doctrine of the incarnation states that when Christ took on our humanity, he took on our weak, frail bodies. And that on Good Friday, that was the last time he had a weak, frail body. Now he's been resurrected in a glorified body, in a body that will never die or waste away. And so in that sense, the, the flesh was put off in his death. 
Yet Jesus' death on the cross can also be considered a circumcision because circumcision represented a cutting off in judgment. All right, so in Genesis 17, it's the first time the Lord commands anyone to be circumcised. He commands Abraham and his offspring to be circumcised. And in Genesis 17, the Lord says to to Abraham regarding this outward sign, he says to Abraham, any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. The point is this. You either cut off the foreskin or you will be cut off. You will be cast out from God's people, from God's presence. And so what happened on the cross is that Jesus was cut off from the land of the living. He was cut off from God's people, and there he was treated as a covenant breaker. On the cross, Jesus was condemned as if he had broken God's law. And yet it wasn't for anything that he had done, but it was for us. It was for our sins that he was cut off to secure our salvation. And that's what's so incredible about this circumcision that happened to Christ. Because in it, we were circumcised. Which is exactly what we need, according to verse 13. Which points out that we were dead in our trespasses and the uncircumcision of our flesh. That is, our trespasses made us as uncircumcised before the Lord. You and I, because of our sins, are considered lawbreakers, covenant breakers before the Lord. And so it's precisely in Jesus' being cut off, his being judged and bearing God's wrath, that now you and I are spiritually circumcised. We are brought into the people of God We are brought into the covenant community, which is what circumcision symbolized. You're part of the people of God if you've been circumcised. So it is today. Now we are circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, as Paul says in verse 11. This this spiritual circumcision, uh, it refers to being converted. Okay? Spiritual circumcision is being conversion or regeneration. Because back in Genesis 17, when the Lord commanded Abraham and his descendants to be circumcised, it was merely an external physical marker indicating who was in the covenant people of God. It it marked off those who intended to live by God's law, who were the inheritors of God's promises. Yet the physical circumcision was never the point. The physical circumcision was never the point. Instead, the external was meant to point to the internal. Okay? Because though Israel was physically circumcised, right, they often acted just like the pagan nations. Which is why in Deuteronomy 10, Moses says to the people, Deuteronomy 10, 16, circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. What's Moses getting at? He's saying, don't rely 
on this physical marker for your right standing with God. Instead, circumcise your hearts. Cut off the sinful parts of your heart. Live set apart for Yahweh, for the Lord. And then basically the rest of Deuteronomy is Moses giving lots of laws, saying, you know, this is what it would look like to circumcise your hearts. Like, do this, don't do that, do this, don't do that, for like 20 chapters. By the time you get to chapters 28 and 29, Moses says, you're not going to do it. You're going to fail the law. The curses of the covenant are going to come. You're going to be exiled. But then in chapter 30, Moses says this. When the Lord brings you back, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, that you may live. Moses' point is this. The Shema, the greatest commandment, Deuteronomy 6. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's what you need to be doing, guys. So circumcise your hearts. You're not going to do it. You're going to fail. And so Deuteronomy 30, does Moses end on a command? No, but a promise. The Lord, he will circumcise your hearts. And it's that promise which Ezekiel picks up on in our assurance of pardon this morning. Ezekiel 36, verse 26, you can see it there. The Lord says, And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Ezekiel saying God will fulfill his promise. He kind of just reiterates what the Lord has said. You're going to have a new heart. He's going to circumcise your heart. And in this, Ezekiel is talking about the new covenant. The covenant which the Lord Jesus inaugurated on the night when he was betrayed at the Last Supper. When he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. And then he, sorry, he, he, he announced it. He inaugurated it on Good Friday on the cross, when he was circumcised, when his flesh was cut off on that good Friday. The point is this. If you have been united to Christ, his circumcision becomes your circumcision, not in a physical, made-with-hands kind of way, But now, by his death, you have been spiritually circumcised. You have been given a new heart and are a new creation. You have been regenerated. We're going to talk more about the doctrine of conversion and what that means next week. Um, But for now, just say, you know, Christianity is so hopeful. It's so hopeful. Because no matter the ways you've sinned and messed up in life, God offers you new heart, total forgiveness, cleansing from your uncleannesses. Man, it would not be hopeful if God said, yeah, all that's available. You just have to like perfectly obey for the rest of your life. Like that's crushing. But when the work required is the work provided through Christ, there's great joy and hope in that. 
And so let's turn to our, our third and fourth benefits of union with Christ. Why the Colossians should not abandon him for false philosophies uh, found in verse 12. We're going to cover numbers three and four together because Paul links them together through baptism. Look there. We have been buried with him in baptism, in which, referring to baptism, you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. All right, so notice that Paul mentions um, the benefits of union with Christ. He mentions the two, and then he qualifies them both. He, he helps us understand what he's talking about. The third benefit, if you are in Christ, is that you have been buried with him. And then Paul, Paul helps unpack that. He explains it as, as being buried with him in baptism. Apparently, there is some link between being immersed in water and being united and benefiting from Christ's burial. But, but then Paul doesn't leave the language of baptism. He rather continues to refine it. Paul says, in which, meaning he's still talking about baptism, in which you were raised with him, that's our fourth benefit, and then he qualifies the baptism which raises you with Christ. That baptism is marked, it has, it possesses, which raises you to life, faith in the powerful working of God. Okay, so I'll just, that's complicated grammar, but lots of glorious truths. What does it mean to be buried with Christ? If conversion and circum spiritual circumcision means that you have new life, to be buried with Christ means that your old life is dead. Your old manner of being, indebted to sin, child of wrath, enslaved to the devil, now that old life is gone. Uh, the debt has been paid. Uh, that, that's, that old life is buried in the ground. And this happens in baptism, Paul says. In what sense does baptism relate to your spiritually being buried? Well, again, Paul continues to define this baptism and its relevance to you, Christian, when he says, in which, that is in baptism, you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. The point is this, that in baptism, you exercise your faith in the God who raised Jesus from the dead. At baptism, you say, God, I want to be Christ's, and I want him to be mine. I'm with him, and he's with me. I want his circumcision to be my circumcision. I want his burial to be my burial. I want his resurrection to be my resurrection. In baptism, our faith in the God who raised Jesus from the dead goes public, goes visible, just like circumcision. Just like circumcision was an external marker. So make no mistake, it is faith which unites us to Christ. It is faith which secures Christ's work on our behalf, baptism doesn't save. Okay, the thief on the cross who believes in Jesus was saved, 
though he had never been baptized. But baptism is such a vivid image of your faith that Paul can say, in baptism, your old self was buried in the grave, and now you've been resurrected to new life with Christ. Now, again, we're, we're going to talk about newness of life and Christ's resurrection power, Lord willing, next week. Uh, but before we conclude verses 11 and 12, I, I think we need to understand the connection between circumcision, baptism, and faith. Because in verse 11, when Paul wanted to talk about Jesus' death, well, why does he use the language of circumcision? We don't have any indication that the false teachers were like the false teachers in Galatia who were obsessed with circumcision. So we don't think that Paul is responding here. He's bringing it up. Why? Well, it's because he wants to talk about conversion. That is spiritual, heart circumcision. And then in verse 12, when Paul wants to talk about Jesus' burial and resurrection... Why does he use the language of baptism? We don't think the Colossian false teachers were obsessed with baptism. Paul is the one who brings it up. Why does he frame it in the language of baptism? Because again, he's talking about conversion, about being made alive in Christ. And so we see this, this connection between circumcision and baptism. Simply put, in the Old Testament, circumcision was the outward, one-time, initiating rite to enter the covenant people of God. And in the New Testament, that sign has been transformed to baptism. Baptism is the outward, one-time, initiating rite to enter the covenant people of God. So there's this, this huge continuity between the circumcision that was applied to, to Israelites and to their children... There's massive continuity between circumcision and baptism. But there's also a big difference, a discontinuity that we need to understand between circumcision and baptism. From Deuteronomy, we saw Moses speaking to a whole nation of Israelites, you know, a, a whole bunch of people who were physically circumcised. And he said to them, circumcise your hearts. Meaning physical circumcision did not guarantee spiritual circumcision. Rather, physical circumcision was meant as a sign to point forward to the possibility and the hope of spiritual circumcision that is new life. The difference is that baptism is not a sign that a person might experience spiritual circumcision, it, baptism doesn't point to the future about a possibility. Rather, baptism points backwards to Christ's work and the faith that united to him. Uh, baptism points backwards to a certainty that has already occurred. That's why Paul says, verse 11, you work circumcised. Uh, verse 12, you have been buried in baptism. In baptism... You were raised. Burial and resurrection have already happened to those who have been baptized. 
It's not, a distinct, it's not a possibility that we're hoping and praying for the future. It's already happened to these Colossian Christians. And, then, and Paul clarifies, again, like how it is, how can he speak about the Colossians as already being baptized in these realities already being true for them, of being spiritually circumcised, spiritually buried, spiritually raised? It's because they have faith in the powerful working of God. This is why, as a church, we believe that only Christians, only those who have faith, should undergo the rite of baptism. Because we believe that baptism is where a person's faith goes public. We believe that baptism is a picture of the faith which has united them to Christ's death and burial and resurrection. Just as circumcision was a sign of inclusion in the covenant community, we believe that baptism is the sign of your faith in God who raised Jesus from the dead. So the reason it would be inappropriate to apply baptism to a baby or to any unbeliever is that they have not been united to Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. Because baptism signifies that you already have died in Christ's death. Baptism signifies that you have been united in his burial. Baptism signifies that you have been resurrected with him. In baptism, you look back and you say, hallelujah, it is finished. Christ has paid my debt and he's made me a new creation. And which was different than circumcision, which said, we hope and pray that one day you will have a new circumcised heart. And so baptism is only legitimate, it's only a real baptism when it's applied to a believer who has experienced union with Christ. Uh, this means, beloved, that if, if you have placed your faith in Christ, uh, you should be baptized. You should make a public profession of that faith. It might be a, that you've been a Christian for a very long time, or it might be that you've been a Christian for a very short time. Um, but, but either way, whichever it is, if you are presently trusting in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, you should go public in that faith in your Lord and Savior. So let's conclude with, with two observations as we wrap up. Uh, number one, baptism is less important than faith. All right? So we're a really Baptist church, but you can be baptized and go to hell. And you can go to heaven and not be baptized. So faith is more important than baptism. I know many, many Christians who were sprinkled as infants, uh, who have not been baptized, in my understanding, um, but they have experienced the spiritual circumcision of Christ because of his death on the cross and his resurrection from the grave. Baptism is a, a really important symbol and picture of our faith uniting us to Christ, but like circumcision, external circumcision, it is no substitute for the faith which brings us to Christ and saves us. So this means don't merely assume that because you or someone else have been baptized that they are truly regenerate. The question is, are they walking by faith in the Son of God? 
Uh, and as Christians, we, we should pursue unity in the body of Christ. I realize say the, uh, even when we disagree about significant issues like baptism, we can still learn from one another, love one another, work together, pray for one another. Uh, the two brothers, the two theologians that I quoted in this in, in the sermon, they're not Baptists, right? So it's like we need to learn from one another, um, and we need to study the Bible together. That's what we're trying to do as a church. I hope, hope you're glad to be along for that ride. That's number one. Number two, praise God for Christ. The truth is that we would all be spiritually dead apart from Christ. We would be held captive to a host of wicked spiritual forces, believing empty deceit. Yet now, if you have put your faith in Christ, you are full. You have a new heart. Your old life is dead and buried. You have been raised with Christ. And so whatever you are seeking after in this life, you can be sure that all that is good and true and right and beautiful will find its consummation in Christ. It is impossible to improve upon him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you would send your son, that he would endure the cross for us. We praise you that you are so gracious as to not, to not reckon our deadness in trespasses, but to forgive us through the death of your son. We pray that if there are any here that don't know his resurrection life in their own hearts, that you would do that, that you would do it even now. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.